Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, opportunity to make sure you are ready to uh, focus and listen and get prepared to take in the word. I'll have uh, I'll open in prayer after a few moments. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here tonight and the opportunity to take the time to focus on your word and realize that the eternal truths of your word are that which provides stability for our souls and stability for our lives. And that as we study your word and understand it, God the Holy Spirit takes these things and makes them real to us and enables us in our application, strengthens us in our application of these things and enables us to grow spiritually. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, we can have a, uh, the ability to put aside the things that distract us and keep us from focusing on your word and put our attention on your word and on what the Holy Spirit has to teach us tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Just a brief report. Yesterday, I got a chance to talk on the phone with uh, Jim Myers. And as you all know, Jim is uh, traveling throughout the country, speaking at a number of churches. And he has spent the last, I don't two weeks or so on the East Coast. He's had a chance to go in the central part of the country. He's had a chance in the middle of that to go to Duluth, Minnesota, up to uh, Dennis Roxer's church at, I think it's Duluth Bible Church. And then he went to uh, Playroma Bible Church where Clay Ward is pastor. He went to um, the National Capital Bible Church where Dan Ingram is pastor and went to Preston City Bible Church where David Rosen's pastor. So he's been traveling around and, and, uh, getting to know some of these pastors and their congregations a little better. For some of those groups, that's the first time he's been there. I think it was the first time he was up at Dan's church, but he's known Dan from before. And uh, it's the first time he's been with, spent much time with David Roseland, though he's been to Preston City a few times. So that's been a good time. And then he's had the opportunity to speak to, speak to several other groups in the process. He will, he's still looking for some opportunities to speak at some other churches, and we need to continue to pray for that and just to pray for his safety and his travels and that God would be uh, blessing his ministry. One thing we keep, need to keep remembering in prayer uh, for his ministry is the fact that their church in Kiev is going to need to find a new place to meet by the 1st of September, so don't forget to be praying for that. Okay, last time we started in 1 Kings 11 where we're looking at Solomon's failure. Solomon's failure, and we see the sin that occurred in Solomon's life and that this occurred over a period of time. 
when God lowers the boom on Solomon, it is not because he stumbled once. It's not because he had one failure, one major failure, but this was a pattern of rebellion against God that began sometime in his later years. For the text tells us that Solomon was older at this time and that he was it was after the time that he had had built the temple and he had finished most of his building projects. So it was the temple was dedicated when he was approximately 40 years old. He dies when he's about 60. So it's sometime in those latter years and extended over a great period of time. We're told in 1 Kings 11.1, King Solomon loved many foreign women. This becomes the source of the problem. The source of the problem, as I pointed out last time, is not a problem related to a sexual lust problem. It is really a power lust problem. The accumulation of a large harem was not necessarily something related to sex as it was power. And these women that he married would strengthen his political alliances with the surrounding countries. And the problem that it shows is that rather than trusting God to provide security for the nation Israel, he is putting his trust in man. And putting your trust in man in the arm of flesh is always a path to failure, especially for the nation Israel that has a unique relationship with God in that theocratic uh, relationship. And so Solomon marries these various women, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and and they influence him. And I pointed out last time that this is always one of the major problems that believers face in terms of those with whom they closely associate. And it's a problem of peer pressure. And so we see that Solomon has to face a people test. And part of that people test is peer pressure and the value systems of those that are close to us and how they influence us. And no matter who people are and what our relationship is, when we have close, intimate relationships with folks that do not hold to the same system of divine viewpoint thinking that we hold to from the Scripture, it is very easy to become influenced and seduced by false doctrine or false teaching. And depending on the circumstances, it may vary in in its strength from one degree to another. So he points out at the beginning that he he loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So there's the Egyptian influence from the daughter of Pharaoh. They're Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite. Now, the, the Moabites and the Ammonites are descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew, through the incest with their daughters. Uh, The Edomites are descendants of Esau. Sidonians are the Phoenicians. These are a Greek and Crete-related sea peoples uh, related to the Philistines and Hittite women. The Hittites were up in the area of, uh, of modern Turkey. Now, that's important because the the writer indicates these various national groups, ethnic groups, at the very beginning, and then when we get into the heart of the problem, which is the idolatry, they will be the same nations that are mentioned again. So they come from the nations 
uh, concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. There is a biblical doctrine of separation. And this is reiterated in the New Testament in passages such as 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 and following, that believers need to be careful not to enter into close relationships with unbelievers. What fellowship has light with darkness, Paul says. And this is especially true in the area of marriage and in the area of dating. One of the key principles that young people need to have inculcated into them by their parents before they reach the age of eight, it seems today, is that they don't need to have close friends or they don't need to get involved in any kind of dating relationship with somebody who is an unbeliever. When I was young, my mother, that was like the second question my mother would always ask, you know, after they found out where do they live, uh, are they a believer? And this started when I was five or six years old. So by the time I was nine or ten, I knew that when I came home, if I had a new friend, I better be able to answer if they were a believer or not. And that was specific, that was especially difficult in uh, my neighborhood because I grew up over in Meyerland. And as many of you know who are native Houstonians, that is the lo- location of the uh, largest uh, segment of the Jewish population. And nearly all of the kids that I would play, you know, street baseball with, uh, football in the, in the uh, winter were, were Jewish kids in the neighborhood. And that was back when we were probably seven, eight, nine, ten, up until the time they bar mitzvahed. Once they bar mitzvahed, I don't, I don't remember seeing them a whole lot. There's a whole total social shift in their life at that point. But before that, we would, um, we would run around together just in the neighborhood, but they weren't close friends. So there's this, the scripture also says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 33, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And so we have to be very careful with whom we associate. Now this quote, this statement in 11.2 and 11.3 comes out of, or in 11.2 rather, comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 and 4 and is almost a direct quote indicating the warning not to intermarry uh, with those who were uh, in the land, not to intermarry with foreigners because they would turn the people away from following the Lord to serving other gods, which is exactly what happened with uh, Solomon. I pointed out last time that Solomon broke the divine establishment for marriage in that he multiplied wives to himself, and that was uh, prohibited based just on the pattern of marriage and creation of one man for one woman. Every now and then, you will run into people who will say, well, does God allow or permit multiple marriage? I think that question may have arisen in several people's minds after the latest episode with the uh, uh, fundamentalist uh, Mormons out in um, uh, West Texas after they came in and, and took the children away from them. And every now and then I get questions from people or there's a discussion that, well, God seemed to allow uh, polygamy in the Old Testament. And if you think about it and analyze it, that is a gross misrepresentation of the facts. God warned against it. Uh, Abraham did not have a polygamous marriage. A concubine relationship that he had with Hagar 
was not the same as a marriage. It was a culturally protected, and the culture legally protected that status, but it wasn't the status of a marriage. It seems very odd to us, but it's not the same as polygamy. Then Isaac was monogamous. He had uh, Rebecca. Uh, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, because he was deceived in the first marriage. He was not, it was not based on a uh, validation of polygamy. And then you, what you see in most of the Old Testament is uh, one man, one woman in a marriage. You don't see the Jews practicing polygamy. When you get into the monarchy period, David practiced polygamy, Solomon did, but this was typical of the kings of other nations. And remember the warning God gave to Israel when they wanted a king like all the other nations, that this would be part of the temptation for the kings to increase taxes and to uh, levy a military draft on their sons and to build armies and, and to impose tax burdens on the people and also to multiply wives. And that's why the prohibition was given in Deuteronomy uh, 17, uh, 17 uh, to, to the king that he should not multiply wives for himself. He was not to act like the kings everywhere else. And that principle is true for believers today that we are to live lives that are distinct from the unbelievers around us in terms of our ethics and our morals and our standards. So Solomon, as I pointed out last time, broke the divine establishment for marriage. He broke the Mosaic law for marriage, and he broke the Mosaic law code for royal marriage. Then the problem, as I pointed out last time, is that when you don't separate, then the trend is towards assimilation and tolerance in the modern sense of the word, which is not the traditional sense of toleration. Tolerance basically means you allow somebody to have other views even though they're wrong, but there's no problem with telling them that they're wrong. But the modern view of tolerance is that you have to approve it when somebody else holds opposing views, even if they're wrong and destructive, you still have to uh, admit that it's okay. Well, if everything's okay, then there's nothing to ever discuss or be upset about, but it's okay to hold any position as long as it's not uh, Christian. Then I pointed out that uh, God, um, that Solomon rather, violated the promise that God made to him with reference to the covenant he had made with his father. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 14, when the Lord appeared to Solomon the first time, He promised him that if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Now, what does God mean when he he uses this phrase, walk in my ways? Does he mean to be completely obedient? Well, he can't mean that because he uses David as a standard. And we know that David had some extremely egregious sins. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he conspired to have her husband Uriah put in a dangerous position in a battle so that he would be, he would be killed when it turned out that uh, Bathsheba was, was pregnant. He tried to cover up that pregnancy. Then later on, he numbered the people who had a census in violation of God's command. That brought a serious judgment 
from God upon the nation as a result of his sins. So David had some grand sins. So the phrase, walk in my ways, doesn't mean to be sinless or to be flawless or to be without fault or sin in your life. It means to be focused and oriented to to God, not violating the First Amendment. There will be no other gods before me is the first commandment. And when you look at this context here in 1 Kings 11, the evil that is done by Solomon is defined in context as introducing and permitting and advocating idolatry, violating the first, first commandment of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments. So if you're walking in my ways, as far as God is concerned, is related to keeping the law, keeping the Ten Commandments primarily, not necessarily being sinless, not keeping it perfectly. And so the promise is that if, if Solomon remains loyal to God, then God is going to uh, prolong his days and also there would be additional blessings. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, when God appears to Solomon the second time, this is after the temple dedication, God said, as for you, if, and that if clause, that conditional clause, is what you find in the promise to Solomon, but we don't find it in the Davidic covenant. This is a conditional promise to Solomon. The Davidic covenant promised that the seed would pass through David and that the Messiah would come through David's line. But in 1 Kings 9, he's telling Solomon that if you're obedient, it'll also come through your line. But if you're not obedient, which is the focus of verses 6 and following, then it will not come through your line. And so in verse 4, we read, As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But that did not happen with Solomon because of his disobedience. God is going to take this blessing away from him, and so there will be a loss of this additional blessing in in Solomon's descendants. And one of his descendants toward the end of the line of the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah was a king by the name of Jeconiah, also referred to as Coniah. And because he was so evil, God cursed him that the the line through Coniah would not continue. And so when Jesus comes, the, the line through Joseph goes through Coniah. And so what the, um, in, in Matthew, the focus of the uh, genealogy there is to show that Joseph can't be uh, Jesus' physical father because it goes through Sol- that line goes through Solomon and Coniah, and God had uh, cursed the Coniah line. And Luke, the point of that genealogy is to show that through Mary, Jesus has a direct line back to David through another son, Nathan. So that is, that's the significance of understanding this particular uh, promise and the failure on, on Solomon's part. Now, one of the things we need to pay attention to is the fact that this is a promise that God has made directly to Solomon. 
And we have different kinds of promises in the Bible. There are promises that God makes to specific people that's only for that individual. There are promises that Jesus made to the 11 disciples that are only for the 11 disciples. There are second category promises or promises God makes to individuals, but he's looking at those individuals as representatives of their lineage, of their, their descendants. And so the promises God makes to Abraham are promises that are for all of his descendants uh, through, through the seed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are other promises, and it's difficult sometimes when you're studying the Gospels to decide is it, when Jesus is making promises to the disciples, if that promise is just for the disciples or is it for the church that's represented by the disciples. So that becomes a challenge in different passages. So here we have, and then there are other promises that are just generally made to either Jews in the Old Testament or to church-age believers. There are promises made to Jews in the Old Testament, but they transfer because they represent universal principles. And so you have to decide what these promises are and to whom they are directed. And of course, we saw the classic one that is often abused from Second Chronicles uh, 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will turn to me, then I will bless, bless, their, uh, bless those people and return them to the land, etc. And that particular promise is often taken out of context and applied to America. But that promise doesn't have any transference because, as we pointed out when I took us through that study in relationship to uh, this particular passage, it's not in First Kings 9, it's in the parallel passage, uh, the expansion of God's response in Second Kings 7. Same incident. It is related to a, the covenant promise and covenant obedience of Israel. And you, every time you have the phrase, your people, when, a, when Solomon or someone else is talking to God. And whenever you have the phrase, my people, when God is speaking, it always refers in Kings and Chronicles to Israel and only to Israel, and, it can't, it, and it's related to a context based on God's promises in the Mosaic Law. So there's no transference there. There's no universal principle there that can be uh, applied or taken over to any other nation or any other people because only Israel has that unique covenant relationship with God. Well, 1 Kings 9.5 goes on to say that, that God's promise is that he'd establish that, that uh, throne of, of Solomon uh, just as he had promised to David. But in verse 6, he sa- gives us the contrast. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, and this is what happens in 1 Kings 11, that Solomon turns away from following God. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And that's the divine discipline that ultimately comes on Judah in 586 B.C. So at that point, Israel become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And in verse 8 we read, And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this? And so it becomes a, uh, a, an object lesson in history to what happens to those who are disobedient. Then we come to 1 Kings 11.4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David 
his father had been. And we come to blank slides. Okay. This is a map to give you an idea, an orientation geographically to what we're going to see in the upcoming verses. Beginning in verse 5, we read, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. See, I just love the way this is. This is so politically incorrect. But since it's God the Holy Spirit articulating this, it's, it's a very clear pattern for how to address idolatry. I'm trying to implement this into my, my vocabulary so that I can talk about uh, the abomination of the Arabs, Allah. That's the same kind of thing. Every time you talk about Islam, just say the abomination of the Arabs, Allah. And that's the, and just how you get a reaction from people today is the kind of reaction you would get among the Jews throughout much of history because they kept wanting to assimilate to these religious systems around them and to get in, and to syncretize with them, which means to absorb the ideas and practices within these pagan religions into the worship of Yahweh. And that's why they will be punished. And as we go through the rest of uh, First Kings and Second Kings, this is what we see again and again and again is this cyclical pattern of, of uh, turning against God and turning to these other gods. Now, the, thing that, the other thing that we need to point out here that is important to breaks open the whole passage is that Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel, but he is not simply the God of Israel. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. He is the true God in heaven above. And that becomes the challenge that we see again and again, and it culminates in the ministries of, in the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and especially with Elijah's grand confrontation with the uh, prophets of the Asherah and Baal at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. So this begins to foreshadow what's coming, this, this head-on confrontation between God and the false gods of the people who surround Israel. But what you should note is each of these gods that are meant, gods and goddesses that are mentioned are the nation, are, are identified with these particular nations. So what Solomon is doing is he is entering into these uh, uh, alliances through his wives with these other nations, and there is a religious element that goes with that. And as they come to take up residence in Israel, they are bringing their gods and goddesses with them. And then when Solomon validates their gods and goddesses and builds altars for them, what he's getting involved in is really a form of internationalism. And that's what this, this sin is all about. It's not a sin that is primarily about sex. It is a sin that is about uh, being a traitor in a political sense to God because God is the ultimate king of Israel. And it is, it is a denial of the unique national status of Israel and and the assimilation, the it's an early form of multiculturalism, 
and internationalism and globalism and assimilating these other gods and goddesses so that every everything is fine and all paths lead to God. This is the same uh, kind of teaching that we find in the new religious thing that <clears throat> Oprah Winfrey's promoting. It's a basic tenet of much of Eastern religions that uh, as long as you, you're, you're feeding your spiritual side, then all paths somehow lead to God. And what I resent about that is that those systems deny the fact that the Bible says that there's only one way to God. You know, they want to try to force Christians into their mold, but Christianity says that it is unique. There is one and only one way to God. So Solomon is making a politically treasonous decision when he gives these sacrifices to these these national gods of these other people. So we see uh, Phoenicia located up here in the uh, north and west of Israel, the area that is modern modern, uh, Lebanon. Major cities are Tyre and Sidon on the coast at that particular time. Then we have, as we move around to the, uh, to the east, you come down and you have Ammon located in the Transjordan area, in the area of modern, uh, the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And the capital city of the old Ammonite kingdom was Rabah, which is modern, uh, Ammon. And then south of Ammon is Moab. South of Moab is the territory of Edom. And then as you swing further around to the south and west, then you have Egypt. The gods of the Philistines were basically the same kinds of gods as the Phoenicians because they're very closely related people. Now let's take a couple of moments just to understand who these gods and goddesses were. The first one that's mentioned is the Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians. Now, this can get a little confusing when you start trying to research all these gods and goddesses within the different uh, systems of mythology in the ancient world. And as I was doing research on this last week and this week, I would run across different articles that that would uh, correlate the fertility goddess, because the Ash, actually this is Astarte or Asherat, depending on the country and the name, Ishtar or the, and Ashtoreth, the E-T-H is a plural ending, actually, because, and the reason that is used often is because there were so many different manifestations of her. She's an Egyptian goddess. Sometimes there's this confusion or assimilation between, uh, uh, Ishtar or Astarte and Anat, who was the goddess of war, and they blend together in different uh, countries and dif- different systems. And so sometimes it's it's difficult even for the scholars in these areas uh, to distinguish them. Some will say that uh, Astarte was also known as Demeter in Greece. And then others will say, no, this was a- she was Aphrodite or she was Diana. So there's this, there's this uh, mixture of these different elements and different aspects of uh, the, the female goddess and the female goddess cult in the ancient world. But one of the things that happens 
in every system is you have a, a mother-child cult where you have a goddess and you have, and she has a child or a daughter uh, or a son, and that son has to be taken to the place of the dead, and then he's uh, resurrected and brought up to uh, back to earth for a period of time. And so this is is a sort of a foreshadowing related to the uh, resurrection of Jesus. And some people try to say, well, that's all that Christians did with Jesus was take over these resurrection myths, and they don't recognize the radical uh, distinction here uh, between these various groups. Well, the asterisk, as I pointed out, the term itself is a plural term, and that ETH indicates that it refers to this grouping of these goddesses and their various manifestations. In this passage, she's, uh, she's mentioned as the goddess of the Sidonians, but she was also very famous and very central in the pantheons of the Egyptians and the Babylonians. In the area of, of um, it's not on this map, but up here, I think around this area where Beirut is or a little bit north, where modern Beirut is a little bit north, is the ancient town of Byblos, and the oldest temple to the uh, Ashtoreth was uh, a temple in, in Byblos. Another thing that's interesting to note about her name is that the normal way in which a feminine noun is pluralized in Hebrew is by adding an O-T at the end. But her name is pluralized by adding an E-T at the end. And this is was a result, scholars believe, as a deliberate attempt in the Hebrew language to alter her name in such a way that they, they create a pun. And they put the vowels into her name that came from the Hebrew word boshet, which means shame. And remember the lame son of or grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth. Bosheth is that last syllable of that name, and is a word for shame. So that they took the vowels from Bosheth and put it into Ashtoreth in order to emphasize uh, the shame of the worship of Ashtoreth. She was called in the Sidonian pantheon the Lady of the Sea. Their chief god was called El, which is the, it's related to the same word, for the root for El in Hebrew. These are all Semitic languages, and the name of God, the generic name for God, is El. And so she was the consort for El in some passages and some myths and others. She is a sister. But in the ancient world from the period of the 15th century B.C. on, she is the chief goddess in among the Phoenicians. And she is also called the goddess of holiness. And they apply the, uh, the word kudshu uh, to her. Now, the Hebrew word, verb for holy, to be holy, is kadash. And that word means to be set apart to a god or to the service of a god. And so this idea of set-apartness is emphasized on this particular goddess. And she's also, in other myths, she shows up as the consort of Baal, who is actually the son of El. And in the development of most of these myths, the senior god, 
begins to disappear. And in fact, there was a Jesuit sociologist by the name of Wilhelm Schmidt who wrote a six-volume work in the French that came out in the 20s and generally ignored by everybody, that where he had researched the various mythological systems of every people group throughout the world back, that they knew of back in the 20s, and he showed that they all originated with an original monotheism. Now, ever since the uh, onslaught of Darwinism, the thinking in the history and evolution of religion is that religion started with spiritism and animism, and then they evolved upward to uh, pantheism and then to uh, polytheism and then eventually to monotheism. And monotheism is actually, according to uh, the evolution of religion view, a late development. But what he showed in his studies was just the opposite, that if you trace these uh, mythological systems back all the way to their ultimate beginning, they begin with a very strong uh, monotheistic deity. And then there is a breakdown. And so usually you have these systems, for example, in uh, the Roman system, you have Saturn, and Saturn's son is Jupiter. In the Greek system, you have, uh, you have Uranus, and his son is Zeus. And in the Canaanite pantheon, you have El, and El's son is Baal. And these younger sons overthrow the power of the higher deity so that they fade into uh, the background. And I think, my personal opinion, is that this is sort of a distortion related to the, over, the attempt to overthrow God by Satan and wanting to put himself in power because these other deities come along and they're the gods of power. They're the gods, usually lightning, thunder, uh, power, fertility. These things are associated with Baal, with Zeus, with Jupiter. And so the consort of Baal in Sidon is Asherah, and this is a particularly vile and perverted form of worship because she is associated very closely with uh, fertility, and her uh, worship was take, took place in high places uh, up on the hillsides where they would build altars of incense and stone pillars, and this is why this idea of worshiping in the high places was uh, particularly heinous and is pointed out many times in the Old Testament as a particular problem because that's where they would have these uh, cultic emblems and symbols for the uh, Baals and the uh, Asherim, and that they also indicate that they were worshipped with uh, various priests, priests and uh, priestesses. And these priests and priestesses were given names that were related to this same root, Kadash. They were called uh, the Holy Ones, and, and they were... Uh, so this indicates that holy doesn't have this concept of moral purity, it really has the idea more of being set apart to the service of these of these gods, and so these uh, fertility deities were worshipped through uh, cultic prostitutes, both male and female, and that involved both both sodomy as well as uh, heterosexual relationships. Now, I, I'm trying to train myself to use the word sodomy and sodomite. Uh, more consistently because we live in a world today 
where this is a particular place where the battle is being enjoined, and the battle is frequently over vocabulary. Just think about the the battle that goes on between the two sides, whether they are pro-choice or pro-life. And the pro-life side wants to call the other side as they are abortionists. And so one side wants to call themselves more positive names. The other side calls themselves uh, more positive names. And whoever dominates in terms of choosing the nomenclature is going to have a position of advantage in the debate. And in the 19th century, in fact, it didn't come in the word homosexual and heterosexual did not enter into the English vocabulary until 1912. It first shows up in French about five or six years earlier. And it's also about that same time, just a little bit earlier, that the term gay begins to be used with among homosexuals to describe themselves. And they choose, they, they, they coin the term the gay community, the homosexual sodomite community, and these are not words, sodomite is not a nasty word, it is actually the technical legal term for homosexual activity. But they coined the term homosexual and heterosexual because it shapes the argument in terms of thinking that these are two alternative options. And so when you use the word homosexual or heterosexual, you unwittingly affirm and validate their position. Same thing with the word gay. This is what These are the terms that they have chosen that they want to be called by because they don't have negative connotations, whereas that word sodomite certainly has negative connotations, but it's actually the correct legal term, and most Bibles, although there's a variation in modern translations, it was interesting to note that both the New King James Version and New Revised Standard Version uh, updated their vocabulary in most passages to translate uh, the key Hebrew and Greek words with sodomite instead of, of uh, homosexual. So the battle is with the terminology. So the term sodomite is not an insult. It's not a pejorative. It is not a term that is used to uh, ridicule or insult People, but it is the correct term describing their particular uh, orientation, and it doesn't validate their process. If you use the word homosexual or gay, what you've done is you've given them an advantage in the argument already. You've already validated part of their uh, presupposition just by letting them set the agenda by determining uh, the vocabulary. But this was a common practice in these, in these temples and in the worship rites with the temple prostitutes, the male and the female. This is why God thinks that God condemns the worship of the Ashtoreth so roundly in Baal. When this gets introduced by Jezebel at the time of Ahab, you see the, the perverted uh, decline of, uh, of, of the Israelites. So the worship of the Ashereth from Sidon is particularly heinous. So Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and that term that he went after has certain sexual overtones because that's inherent within that, that worship, and it, that vocabulary stands out 
in contrast to the vocabulary that we see in verse 7. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people Ammon. And he did likewise. He builds these high places, but for Ashtoreth, he goes after them. So there's a contrast there. Well, that deals with Ashtoreth. Milcom is based on the same uh, consonant base as Moloch. These are just different manifestations of the same God. Moloch is the abomination of the people of Ammon, and Milcom is the abomination of the Ammonites in verse 5. They're basically the same God, and Moloch was considered a, a, was a deity who was honored by the sacrifice of, of uh, children. Let me see here. I've got some pictures to show you here. This is... Um, some of the idols that we found of the uh, Ashtoreth, uh, Ashtar, Istarte. This is where, we, if you don't know this, this is where we get the word Easter. is from Ishtar. And the eggs were a symbol of the goddess Ishtar, who is the goddess of fertility. And so we have, uh, you wonder where Easter eggs come from? Uh, this is, that's where th- this is all related historically. And you have also the picture, I don't have one up here, we've seen it before, the picture of Diana, the uh, goddess of the Ephesians, the Diana of the Ephesians, who is different from the hunting goddess Diana, and she's pictured as the many-breasted goddess, and her breasts are pictured as eggs because of fertility. So this symbolism that we have, and, and the, the worship really be, uh, cranks up for these uh, fertility goddesses in the spring. So there was this assimilation that took place, and this terminology Easter and the eggs and all that kind of gets borrowed into Christianity. Uh, here's a picture of one of the idols of Moloch. This is an artist's conception. They would build the altar, and they would burn uh, a fire in his belly or if he's seated in the area of his knees and legs, and then they would take infants and they would place these infants upon the fire, and they would be immolated and sacrificed uh, alive as a human sacrifice to the god Moloch. This is also related to uh, Milcom. It's the same god, just different uh, manifestation. And I have here another depiction uh, German uh, of Moloch here and the internal fire you see in the hole at the bottom. There's a fire burning, and then they would lay the children uh, into the arms of Moloch. Leviticus 20, verses 2 and following states, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens, that that's uh, the non-Jewish residents who were living in Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. So the worship of Moloch or Milcom was to be penalized by the, by the death penalty according to Leviticus chapter 20. They were to be put to death through stoning. Leviticus 20 verse 3, I will also, God says, I will also set my face against that man and I will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. So this is extremely serious sins, 
sin that uh, Solomon is getting into. Verse 4, If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch. So this explains why God is so strong in his punishment toward Solomon as to uh, remove from him the blessing that the line of the Messiah would come through him. And 1 Kings 11, verse 6, we read Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, in the context of 1 Kings 11, what is evil? Evil is establishing idolatry. And we'll see this pattern again and again. And you need to pay attention to that. A lot of people try to define evil in different ways. But when it, the root of evil is worshiping anything other than God as the creator, that is the root of evil. And it can involve morality. It can involve all kinds of self-righteous religious activities. Evil is not necessarily what we tend to think of as something that is horrific. Uh, the actions of the terrorists on 9-11 were defined by the president as the acts of evildoers. And in that case, I think he's right, though he didn't intend it this way, because they did it as an act of worship to their evil god, Allah. And he names it correctly, although he didn't understand what he was doing. He just thought it was evil because it was an act of, of mass murder. But it is an act of genuine evil because it was an act of worship for their evil god, Allah. Then verse uh, 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. And Moab exists to the south uh, east of the Dead Sea. And Chemosh was the national deity of the Moabites. We don't know a lot about him. He has been uh, he's mentioned on the Moabite stone, which is one of the oldest archaeological finds that we have related to that period. And he is also thought to have been worshipped in a similar way to uh, Moloch and Milcom sacrificing children uh, to him uh, in the fire. Uh, Milcom, the god of the uh, Ammonites, is the same, same thing. So we have these, and they're called abominations in the uh, New American Standard. It's the same word is translated detestable in uh, in the New King James Version. And this word means to be something that is abhorred, something that is accursed, something that is despicable, disgusting, execrable, something heinous or loathsome. It is the uh, Hebrew word, shekutz, and it has to do with an object that is abhorrent or horrible, a thing that is an absolute abomination. It's used in Nahum 3.6 to indicate that which is a filth, and it indicates forbidden food in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 7. When we come to verse 8, Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So what is going on here in terms of, let's think a minute, a little creatively in terms of application the last few minutes to think about Solomon's failure. What could Solomon have done to avoid his failure? 
Now, it's simple to say something like, well, just obey God. But let's break this down in terms of what we were reviewing two lessons ago in terms of the problem-solving devices. So we just remind you of what the, what the uh, soul fortress looks like. We have a base, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit, which doesn't apply in the Old Testament because they weren't indwelt by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. But they do have a procedure of cleansing or confession through sacrifice. Obviously, Solomon quit going to the temple and confessing his sin. Then the next stage is the faith rest drill. What could Solomon have done? How could he have applied the faith rest drill? Well, he had something that you and I don't have, is specific individual promises that were given to him by God, both in 1 Kings chapter 3 and in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he had promises from God that if he remained faithful, God indeed would bless him, establish his throne, and the promise was that the seed would come through him. All he had to do was claim that promise towards God, claim the promises that were inherent in the Mosaic covenant and in the Davidic covenant and in the promises to him. But he fails to claim those promises and to make them a reality in his life. The next problem-solving device that we talked about is grace orientation. Grace has to do with recognizing that God's blessings to us have nothing to do with who we are or what we've done that in and of ourselves we are nothing. Everything that we have comes from God. Solomon depicted grace orientation in those early years when he was king and he was humble and he was dependent upon God. But as he saw the grandeur of his kingdom and the wealth that was accumulated and he looked at all of his accomplishments and the results of his building program, the palace, the uh, fortifications, the temple itself, he began to think that he had something to do with his prosperity. And yet it's very clear from 1 Kings chapter 3 that God says, because you asked for wisdom and you didn't ask for wealth or power or military strength, I am going to give you all of these other things. So that every, he, it was very clear to Solomon that everything that he had was just based on the grace of God, but he forgot that. So he lost his grace orientation, and he began to think that what he had was the result of who he was and what he had done and his own uh, inherent wisdom and strength. So he failed to apply anything related to grace orientation. And uh, the next step is doctrinal orientation, orienting your thinking to the plan of God. God had outlined his plan to him, the Mosaic Covenant, as well as the Davidic covenant, the promises God made to him that we talked about a minute ago in 1 Kings 3 and 9, these are all part of the plan of God. He's not orienting his thinking to the plan of God as it's been revealed to him. He's not orienting his thinking to the mandates of God as they're revealed to him in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. And so he is violating the word of God and disobeying the word of God in specific commands over a long period of time. So he lost his doctrinal orientation, and he is worshiping other gods, which divorces him from reality as he is beginning to uh, buy into and live his life on the basis of these fantasy constructs of these other religious systems. 
Uh, the next problem-solving device is a personal sense of eternal destiny, but we can modify that for Solomon and realize that God was offering him a specific destiny in terms of being the progenitor for the line of the Messiah and being that if he's obedient, then God would establish his throne forever as he was establishing David's throne forever. But he got his eyes off of the eternal plan of God and living in his life in light of God's future destiny, and he focused it on what was going on in the present, in the here and now. So he lost his personal sense of destiny. He failed in his personal love for God. Deuteronomy states in numerous places where God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and my statutes and my ordinances. And so he lost his love for God. Once you lose grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense for destiny, your love for God is gone and it is replaced with disobedience and a disregard and disrespect for God. It also affected his love for his uh, for the other Jews, his impersonal love. He overtaxed the people, put a burden upon the people, and the blessing that they had enjoyed under him, which was related to his relationship with God, caused a failure on their part, and they experienced the discipline that came as a direct result of his disobedience. They were disciplined and cursed by association because of the disobedience of Solomon. So there's no love for his fellow Jews. Remember Leviticus uh, 18 talks about the uh, law of love under the Mosaic law that you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he disregards his neighbor, the other Jews in the kingdom, by leading them into idolatry and uh, validating idolatry. So that is a violation at that point. Then we have occupation with Christ, which is not an Old Testament problem-solving device, but what they had in the Old Testament was just occupation with God and a focus on uh, on God as the orientation of their life, and he failed at that. And therefore, there is misery in his life, and that's what he comes to when he tells this story in Ecclesiastes, that he became absolutely miserable as he tried to find meaning and happiness uh, searching for for it in wisdom, in accomplishments, in riches, in power. None of these things could bring him what the relationship with God alone could bring him. And the result of this is in verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And that is brought out because so many people think, wow, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just see God, if I had just witnessed the resurrection, if I could just have seen that, then maybe I could believe. No, they could. That is indicated not only in this passage, but even more so in the passage in uh, Luke related to the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man dies, Lazarus dies, and there in uh, Hades, the Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. The rich man who is an unbeliever is in torments and he calls upon Father Abraham. Uh, you remember the story, he calls upon Father Abraham to, to allow uh, Lazarus to be resurrected and to go back and tell his brothers. And Abraham's response is, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they wouldn't believe it if a man were raised from the dead. 
Signs and wonders are not what convinces people of the truth of God's word. That the issue is a volitional issue, and it is not a matter of proof in that uh, empirical sense. And one other comment on verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon, and that concept of anger there is really an anthropopathism related to the expression of God's justice. God does not become angry like man becomes angry, as if uh, you know you are tr- dealing with your children and one of them does something in disobedience and you lose your temper with them. That's not the idea here. It is used, though, as a, as a figure of speech in order to communicate the intensity of God's judicial punishment of Solomon. And this term is used numerous places in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion today because people want to think that God has emotion. But you go back and you read some of the great theologians in the past, they really understood this issue that God's anger has to be a figure of speech because... Uh, it, or an, an emotion in God can't um, there can't be emotion in God because this word emotion if you trace it out etymologically comes from the French word that sounds the same from the root motion which indicates movement or response to something and an emotion is a movement or change that occurs in a person when they are reacting or responding to some external stimuli But God is immutable, and by definition, God doesn't change. And so, and God doesn't change internally as a result of actions that his creatures take. And also, God is omniscient. There's no time in all of his, his eternal existence that he is not fully aware of Solomon's disobedience or the disobedience of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai when Aaron built the uh, golden calf. There's, there's, uh, God is never ignorant of that. So God is not eternally reacting to these things. This is simply an expression of God's justice in time and the certainty of that. Verse 10, God had, reminds us that God had commanded Solomon concerning these things that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what God had commanded. So in verse 11, The Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, and this is grace, principle here is grace even in judgment. When God judges his people, there is always grace even in the judgment. He says, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So there is going to be, this is the statement by God that he is going to split the kingdom in two, and there will be a northern kingdom comprised of most of the tribes, ten of them, and two in the south. Although by this time, Benjamin has assimilated into Judah. So they're spoken of in some passages as only one tribe, Judah, because they all uh, intermingled and lived together. And in other passages, it will distinguish the two. But that explains why this isn't some kind of a, uh, some kind of a mistake in the Bible. 
It is just the way in which uh, it recognizes the reality of the intermingling of Benjamin and Judah. Now, next time, we'll come back, hit a couple of points in review, and then we will look at the fulfillment of God's discipline on Solomon and its impact not just on Solomon, but on the entire kingdom. And it impacts the, the development and history of Israel for the next seven or 800 years in terms of the split, the eventual uh, isolation of, and defeat of the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom, and the problems as a result of Solomon's idolatry are with us even today in, in Israel. So sin is not something that is just isolated and personal. Even it can have a long-term impact and many unintended consequences. But God's grace always provides the answer. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be reminded of your grace, that you always provide the solution. And even in judgment, you are always gracious, not on the basis of who and what we are, but on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Father, we pray that we might be challenged by the things we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.